anthropologists have gone back and forth for decades about the exact time frame of human life on Earth. One of the more popular beliefs is that we originated in the forests of Africa some 8 or 9 million years ago. The ancestor, in which anthropologists believe that we evolved from, is referred to as the Last Common Ancestor, or LCA for short. It is difficult to nail down exactly who this LCA was, but whoever it was, there are in most general sense five major branches of the evolutionary tree that sprouted from this individual. Gorillas, chimps, bonobos, orangutans, and humans, all of which are referred to as the greater apes. Out of our evolutionary cousins, we are vastly different. We look nothing alike. We act nothing alike. We are structured differently. And we like to believe that we are incredibly smarter. That one I'll stay away from, but the others we can address. With all the differences we see between ourselves and our ape cousins, we need to ask the question, what went so different for us? The accepted scientific answer is something referred to as the Savannah Hypothesis, which evolved into what's referred to as the Mosaic Model. In a nutshell, this states that our original home in the forests of Africa became barren due to climate change at the time. And due to the receding of these forests, the incredibly sized grassland ecosystem, now known as the African Savannah, took over our place of residence and we adjusted. The other apes evolved from those that moved with the shrinking forest, and we evolved from those that took to the plains. It was this that led humans to develop bipedalism, hairless skin, tool making, increased intelligence, and verbal communications. Or so science believed. Long story short, this was proved false, mainly thanks to another ancestor of ours, the Australopithecus. But we're not here to discuss why it was all wrong, no. We're here to discuss a specific possibility of our history, one that mainstream science immediately denies under any and all circumstances. With that being said, travelers, we dive into a theory that doesn't place us into the vast plains or forests of Africa, but the borders in which land meets sea. We dive deep into the most rejected possibility of them all. Today, we look into the aquatic ape theory, and welcome back to Infinite Rabbit Welcome back to the Infinite Rat Hole, everybody. I'm your host, Jeremy, and today we're going to go deep into some crazy stuff. I'll tell you, the research that I did for this particular subject really blew my mind. There was a lot here. And honestly, when I first started it, I, there wasn't a lot that I really was banking on. I was like, you know, this is an interesting subject. But by the time I was done building this presentation, I couldn't help it. There's so much here. There's so much that makes you think. And I hope that you guys get the same out of this. So without further ado, I present to you, The Infinite Rabbit Hole presents Aquatic Ape Theory. Now before I begin this presentation on Aquatic Ape Theory, I would like to make one thing clear. I'm not presenting this in a way to prove the existence of merfolk. That is not what this theory is about. The meat of this theory describes the two or three million years we may have been waterbound somewhere along our evolutionary lifespan. 
In comparison, whales or cetaceans have a traceable evolutionary lifespan of roughly 70 million years as a solely water-based life form, and seals as a 25 million year span as mostly aquatic. No, one of the best comparisons of this theory is the otter. Otters are land-based mammals with subaquatic lifestyles. They eat, breathe, mate, sleep, and do a majority of their daily tasks outside of the water. The aquatic ape theory describes a time where early hominids would have been adapted to a life closely associated with water. If you look at just the skeletal structure of an otter, would you or any scientist completely unfamiliar with this animal know that it had a lifestyle that relied so heavily on bodies of water? No. Its skeletal structure would look similar to badgers, weasels, minks, ferrets, and others of this shapely frame. It is no secret. We are a lot different from our ape cousins, and the aquatic ape theory dives into that division from the point of view that we may have lived a more water-reliant lifestyle in the past. Aquatic Ape Theory In 1942, a man by the name of Max Wessenhofer brought up the idea that maybe we spent time living an aquatic lifestyle sometime in our history. The idea was more claimed as the only other, quote, genius alternative hypothesis by Wessenhofer, but it was ignored and ridiculed by the majority of the scientific community since then. There have been a few that have come forward in defense of this idea, mostly notable Sir Alistair Hardy in the 60s and, presently, Elaine Morgan who unfortunately passed away just a few years ago, whose book, The Aquatic Ape Hypothesis, I used heavily for the research of this presentation. In a nutshell, Morgan describes the aquatic ape theory as, quote, that the events which diverted our own ancestors along an unusual evolutionary path had something to do with water. Most of the evidence of this comes in the comparison of our anatomy to those of the other great apes, which we'll do soon. But before we do that, let's look at geography and fossils. From as far north as the country of Jordan to as far south as the southeast coast of Mozambique, a distance that spans roughly 4,000 miles, there is an area of Africa known as the Great Rift Valley. This natural land full of deep and massive ravines, basins, and trenches was one of the few places on Earth that were home to lush vegetation and gigantic lakes during the last major ice age. This is where at least some of our ancestors called home. Today, and in the history of anthropology, this has been a goldmine of discovery about our past, and a major majority of the fossils found of hominids were along the shores of these great lakes. Does that answer our question? Nope. Unfortunately, there are a few things to understand about fossils and life in general. If there is water, there is life. Whether it is freshwater or along the shores of the oceans, life is there. We can expect that we were too. Another benefit of the coastline is the sediment that is commonly found around bodies of water. And this sediment is an excellent preserver of bones for fossilization due to the large amount of natural minerals that when hardened over many years becomes something known as sedimentary rock. This sedimentary rock is what we find fossils in, and the study of this process is known as taphonomy. Think of it this way. If something dies near the water, there is a chance that the body gets trapped in the sediment and is gone forever, unless dug up. But if something dies in the grassland or the forest, one of two things happens. They get eaten, or they decay. So unfortunately, no, this does not like the theory in fact, but it doesn't hurt. The oldest discovered fossils of early hominids are found in the northern portions of the Great Rift Valley, or northeastern corner of the continent of Africa. 
The belief is that this is where the earliest hominids, roughly 3.7 million years ago, began their evolutionary journey. And through their time on the shores of the vast lakes that once were, they would have become very reliant on the water as a source for food, hydration, mobility, and locational awareness. But wouldn't you think that if early hominids spent a considerable amount of time waterbound, our legs would never have grown so long, and our hands and feet would have begun adapting into webbed appendages like you see in ducks or flippers like you see in seals and other aquatic and subaquatic creatures? Well, it is true that many aquatic and semi-aquatic creatures with legs have very short appendages, and it is very easy to see why the question would arise. But what about storks, cranes, and herons? Could we have gone down that path of evolutions for our long legs? If you look at the other apes, gorillas, pans, which are chimps and bonobos, and pongos, more commonly known as orangutans, have short legs in comparison to the rest of their bodies. The savanna theory claims that we have longer legs due to having to run across vast areas of open plains in order to stay alive. But what if it had a more aquatic reason, like that of our feathery friends? The savanna theory had its time in the limelight for the majority of time we spent researching the ancient African landscape, but recently, a new theory has arisen as king, that being the mosaic theory. The mosaic theory is backed by many recent discoveries and more or less common sense. There was water in the area of the Great Rift Valley three to six million years ago. This we know due to the number of fossils of aquatic and subaquatic species that have been found in these vast valleys. The mosaic theory states that instead of being an area where there was nothing but wide open savanna, and then all of a sudden there are these huge bodies of water, there were patches of forest along the water and stretched out in vague checkerboard-like patterns that became more sparse as the forest began to give way into the savanna. This allows for our ape cousins to have evolved side by side with us, which answers the mystery of why so many of their fossils were also found in the same areas that our last common ancestors were also found. But it also takes away the reason for science's favorite theory of why we lost our hairy bodies and grew our long legs. If other apes that lived beside us never changed in the same way, the question of why we did still applies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply bipedalism. It is no secret that the most glaring difference between us and the other great apes is that we consistently walk on two legs. Although our ape cousins can walk bipedally at times, their favorite mode of locomotion is on all fours. It was a concept originally brought up by the famed American zoologist of the early mid-1900s, William King Gregory, that bipedalism in early hominids came naturally after we left the trees and began to hunt. It allowed us to move fast and more efficiently. But if it was such a great change in our physical structure, why wasn't it adopted by other mammalian creatures? The truth is that there are a lot more benefits to being quadrupedal than there is to being bipedal. For one, all your weight is distributed on four appendages. This allows for more efficiency in energy usage for a higher endurance threshold, allows the young to maneuver their bodies quicker after birth, and allows for easier birthing of young. 
Among the benefits, the most important besides energy cost is speed. I mean, you ever try to race your dog? <laughs> yeah, you're probably not gonna win that race. Bipedalism also has some major flaws, such as balancing on two feet is incredibly harder to do than on four, and when attacked, humans typically fall to the ground. Vital organs are openly exposed, more surface area exposed to weather, especially around our temperature-sensitive organs, harder to hide without giving up a quick means of escape, and agility is far less effective than those on four legs. In fact, out of the few animals that have evolved to become bipedal, most of them become airborne, such as birds and bats. The only other creatures to spend a decent amount of time on their hind legs are marsupials, such as kangaroos. But even they do not walk on two legs as their favorite mode of locomotion. Rather, it is primarily done in order to allow their young to remain in their pouch during movement. Otherwise, if they walked around on four legs, the young could just slip right out. The majority of the time in a moving state, kangaroos and other marsupials will choose to use all fours. But what about apes and monkeys? A lot of us have seen videos where other primates are walking on two legs. The truth is, most primates are what we call brachiators. Brachiation is a form of locomotion used in trees. This form of arboreal motion is commonly seen as swinging from limb to limb, and primate bodies are structurally built to maximize the use of this form of movement. Hips are splayed, feet often are used as additional hands, long arms and short legs are used for better balance, and in some species the tail is used as a fifth appendage. Apes typically are what's referred to as semi-brachiators, which mix leaping and short periods of walking on two legs while on the flat ground to their modes of motion. But even when they are on the ground and walking on two legs, their legs are bowed, hips sway in elongated stride patterns, and their arms are out to their sides as if they were walking a tightrope. Their bodies are just not made for a permanent bipedal lifestyle. So if we look back to the aforementioned LCA, or last common ancestor, and we ponder about the different branches that it eventually evolved into, why did gorillas and chimps evolve knuckle walking to a point that has been around for such a long time that the young are even born with pads used for this form of locomotion? Orangutans have developed fist walking, and it seems that none of these apes have developed a period of bipedalism at all. And why is it that throughout our fossil record, we have never found evidence that we as modern humans have ever dabbled in quadrupedalism even though all of the apes I just mentioned, including us at one point, came out of the trees and began moving along the ground floor of the forest. You would think that we all adjust in similar ways, but that just didn't happen. Why? The pains of walking. It is true that the human body is prone to lower back pains, hernias, and even hemorrhoids, and the cause of this is very well believed to be our perpendicular walking style. If we look back to a few things that I presented earlier, in particular speed and energy cost, we find that bipedalism hurts our chance of survival in a wild setting. It makes us slow due to the use of half the number of limbs used to propel us forward and more air resistance from our upward posture and it uses a ton of energy, both being critical to survival when you're trying not to become lunch to something that is running on all fours. Into the water. Primates are the only animal that became strictly bipedal when in weightable water. Picture any quadrupedal mammal other than a primate in the water. How are they moving? It is believed that primates do this in order to breathe because if they were to remain quadrupedal in the water, they would drown. 
but that would also be true for other four-legged mammals as well. The answer lies in the muscular and skeletal structures of primates, and if one of them were to spend a reasonable amount of time in the water, say a few million years, how would it walk when it came out of the water? Now keep in mind, I'm not talking about a strictly water-based life, I am referring to a primarily water-based lifestyle. You may have noticed that in the last segment I failed to mention one of the most prominent great ape members, the bonobo. The bonobo, aka the pygmy chimpanzee, is a different case compared to the others. Primarily found in the country of Zare, the bonobo's environment is different from that of gorillas, chimps, and orangutans. Their environment is very prone to flooding and has historical evidence that the area was even wetter than it is today. But what about all of this is interesting. Well, although bonobos are considered to use all four appendages while in the trees, they are considered to be bipedal while on the ground. They also show uncharacteristic comforts in the waters of the swamps around the trees that they live in. They run, play, swim, and forage for food on the swamp floor when they are not in the safety of the trees. With recent studies showing that chimps and bonobos began their separate evolutionary paths only 1.7 million years ago, could bonobos offer us a peek into what early life as humans looked like? Well, the bonobo does share one thing with us that other great apes do not, long legs. Compared to all other known great apes, bonobos and humans share legs roughly proportional to each other in comparison to the rest of their bodies. The bonobo's closest living relative, the chimpanzee, has short stubby legs. In the nude. Fun fact, humans have more hair follicles per square inch on top of their heads than any other great ape in any part of their bodies. Why? Was it to protect us from the sun and the spot of our bodies that directly faces the glowing source of skin cancer in the sky? Maybe. But first, let's dive into another question. Why are we nude? Modern scientists believe in a few reasons why this could have happened. Maybe it was evolutionary beneficial because it protected us from harboring an abundance of parasites. Or maybe it was just a way to cool us down. But how would we stay warm? Or maybe our LCAs found one individual without hair and thought it was nice to look at, and that individual fathered other hairless versions of itself, and those offspring became sought after. But to understand naked apes, aka humans, we might be fighting an uphill battle by looking at other apes for reference, because there are none that we know of. So we may have better luck by looking outside of the family and seeing what we have in common with others in the taxonomical class of mammalia. First, I would like to explain that we as humans are what's referred to as autopomorphic. Autopomorphy is a term used to describe when a certain member of a family of animals stands out for one reason or the other. The kicker here is that autopomorphy happens for a reason. Polar bears, arctic wolves, arctic foxes, and ptarmigans are all white versions of their family trees. Why? All of these use the color white to camouflage in snowy environments. All of them have a reason that they are the way they are, and together they create their own family of sorts based on the environment that they live in. So what is the reason why we stand out? What is our family outside of the great apes? Well, here we are looking at the water again. Almost all of the naked species of mammals in the world are at least semi-aquatic, or have some history as once being an animal reliant on a water-based lifestyle. The only exceptions are the naked Somalian mole rat, which never willingly comes to the surface in the daylight, certain pachyderms such as elephants, rhinos, and pigs, and, well, us, humans. 
Note the term pachyderm is no longer used. This once accepted taxonomic family has been segregated to better present its members. Want to know the real funny thing about all the old pachyderms that live a life mostly away from the water? They're all great swimmers. Yep, pigs are good swimmers, and elephants are really good swimmers. Interesting, huh? In addition to that, elephants, pigs, and rhinos all spend considerable amount of time in water or covering themselves in mud in order to help themselves against the sun and the heat. Examples of the known naked mammals that, that live in aquatic or semi-aquatic lifestyles are hippos, walruses, manatees, and dugongs. And the reason that these mammals are the way that they are is most likely that hair or fur does not insulate as well as it is supposed to when it's wet. Blubber and fat are thought to have been traded in due to being much better insulators in water. So let's see what our skin has in common with these fat water lovers. 1. Virtually naked skin. We talked about this already. 2. Our skin is much thicker than any other primates and that is on par with the other water-based naked mammals in comparison to their land-dwelling family. And three, we have a considerably thicker layer of fat directly under our skin compared to our counterparts in the ape family. Coincidences? Well, let's look at fat for a minute. There are two types of mammals that are known to have excessive amount of fat buildup, these being aquatic mammals and hibernating mammals. And there is absolutely nothing in our fossil record to make us think that our ancestors ever hibernated for the winter. Plus, those that do hibernate are covered in fur, their fat does not adhere to their skin, and their fatty tissue is a seasonal characteristic, not permanent. But another thing to look at when it comes to fat is our infants. Human infants are incredibly fat when they are born compared to other apes and other mammals. This growth of fat continues until we are about a year old. This is also a common phenomenon in one other group of mammals. You guessed it, aquatic mammals. Another comparison between aquatic and land-based mammals when it comes to fat is the distribution of the fat. Mammals that spend their lives landlocked tend to have the majority of the fat in their bodies congregated around the major organs like the heart, liver, and kidneys. Whereas aquatic and semi-aquatic mammals have the majority of their fat just under the dermis layer. Want to take a guess as to where the majority of our fat is in our body, even with those that are in great shape? <laughs> Honestly, I think you know where I'm going with this. Water excretion. Did you know that the only mammal known to produce tears coming from their eyes due to an emotional response other than a human is an elephant? Yes, it's true. The many claim that horses and rhinos also produce tears during various emotional states, but neither has been proven to be caused by an emotion. Not something I'm using in this argument, but food for thought for sure. Instead of looking at tears, though, let's take a look at another form of moisture excretion from our bodies, sweat. This argument begins with one question. If humans apparently evolved from an ancestor that spent its life in the heat of the prehistoric African savanna, then why are we so bad at retaining water? Here's what I mean. A loss of 10% of the water in our body can be lethal for almost any human and extremely difficult to recover from. And we lose more water than any other mammal per pound of body weight with almost everything we do in our daily life. Sleeping, crying, breathing, urinating, defecating, and sweating to name a few on top of a low drinking capacity. But almost every other mammal in the world can lose up to 20% of its bodily moisture and recover at a much more successful and quicker rate. Another thing to look at in the topic of water economy in our bodies is how come we are incredibly sweaty compared to any other mammal in the world. 
There are two primary parties when it comes to this question. One is that we develop such a sweating mechanism to cool us off in the heat of the sun-baked grasslands. But then again, why would we do that if we are so sensitive to water loss? And the other is that there is no way we develop sweating due to a dry climate because it is counterproductive if we sweat to keep cool, but also dehydrate ourselves in the process without access to water. In which the argument is yet again that because we did develop such a sweating mechanism, there must have been plenty of water rapidly available to feed the constantly deprived reservoirs of moisture in our bodies. Which is an awesome argument for the idea that we did not develop due to a dry savanna, but rather a water-filled swampy forest. So how do other animals cool down their bodies on a hot day? The answer is panting. Panting has been adopted by most mammals as a way to regulate body temperature and is seen in our ape cousins as well. It is also extremely efficient at dispersing heat that enters the body from the surrounding environment. Yes, it is true that humans will pant when running or exercising, but the reason we pant is not to control our body temperature, but to allow for an increased oxygen usage per the demand of the activity. Yet another thing that separates us from not just other mammals, but the other great apes as well. All in all, when you really think about it, there must have been an incredible amount of time living in aquatic or semi-aquatic life somewhere in human history on the basis of fluid excretion alone. Non-panting animals all live an aquatic lifestyle. There is no reason to pant in water with a thick layer of fat and the danger of drowning if the body naturally goes into such breathing technique while underwater. So far, we have discussed that we cannot have developed bipedalism in the way that history tells us. We could not have developed fatty bodies in the way history tells us. We could not have developed nude bodies in the way that history tells us. And we could not have survived if we developed sweating due to the way history tells us. But an aquatic period in our history before we left the plains of Africa does work. Breathing and speech. Another physical characteristic that separates humans from the other greater apes and almost all other mammals is the development of a descended larynx. It has been long believed that this is why humans have developed speech, but this has been proven to be false. But what is strange is that the only other mammals that are known to have descended larynxes are dugongs, walruses, and sea lions. So why is it that we developed a larynx that lays lower in our throat than almost all of our mammalian class members? It is a common misconception that if a human has developed it, then it is better than everything else. That is wrong, and it is wrong in this instance. A descended larynx is the root of why humans have higher rates of inhaling their own vomit, considered a major factor in sudden infant death syndrome, and increases the chance of choking on your food. The larynx, by the way, is what is commonly referred to as the voice box, and its job is to open to allow air into the lungs and close the blocked food from entering. Other mammals have larynxes that connect to the hard palate behind the roof of their mouth. This is a much better design, and allows for much lower chances of choking on food and vomit getting into your trachea. Having a higher larynx also limits other animals to a primarily nostril breathing technique. Whereas humans are also primarily nasal breathers, but have the ability to change to predominantly oral breathing when wanted or needed. So again, why do we have a descent of larynx if it is such a disadvantage? Well, let's look once again at the other animals that share the trait. In the mammal world, the previously mentioned walruses, dugongs, and sea lions all have the same basic setup that we do. And what do they do that is vastly different than any others? They gulp air. 
Other aquatic animals do not gulp air. Instead, they will simply hold their breath after a simple inhale. These mammals are also notably able to become mouth breathers when necessary like humans. And if we look outside the mammal class and look at the avians, for example, birds that do not dive into water are nose breathers only. But birds that dive such as ducks, geese, and cormorants have the ability to breathe through their mouths when needed. But yet again, that has to be just another coincidence, right? Speech Elaine Morgan put it best, quote, The doctor may ask you to breathe in or cough, but he does not say things like, Well, now I'd like you to slow down your heartbeat, or kindly sweat into this bottle for me. And an ape is in the same position when asked to utter speech. Other great apes may want to, or may be ready to, but they lack the ability in their anatomy to do so. And the muscles that they lack are not in the mouth or throat. It's in their chest, and allow the chest to expand and contract, which pushes a controlled flow of air through the throat, past the larynx, and out of the mouth, producing a sound that we refer to as a voice at varying ranges. So without these muscles, speech is impossible for other apes. But why do we have these muscles that allow us to blow out birthday cakes, sing in the choir, blow into breathalyzers, or yell at the top of our lungs? And why don't our mammal family members have them? Well, there happens to be something referred to as the diving reflex, or what is scientifically known as the bradycardia effect. This is the term given to the phenomenon in which all unwilling mammals, once submerged into waters at different temperatures than the surrounding air, will unwillingly have their heartbeat slowed and more oxygen sent to the brain. This effect can be seen in humans that have only their face submerged in cold water as well. And this physiological response allows for a longer time in which a mammal can hold their breath underwater compared to out of water. But the trick here is that typically the subject cannot know that they will be submerged into water. And the natural instinct of the body in a situation where it does not know when its next breath will be causes the heart to slow down, which uses less oxygen and most of the oxygen available in the body will be forced to the brain in order to ensure that consciousness is extended, all leading to a longer period of holding breath while underwater. When studies were conducted in the 1960s and beyond, it was found that humans, due to their ability of gulping and their ability to control the rate of air entering and leaving the body, were able to perform much better when compared to other mammals, especially apes. Humans are also able to create buoyancy in a way that other non-aquatic animals cannot. We do this not only because of the fat layer attached to our skin, but also because of our ability to gulp in air and the muscles that are needed in order to keep it there. Now before we finish up with breathing and speech, I want to point out one more observation that was made in Elaine Morgan's book, The Aquatic Ape Hypothesis. That being that apes are well known to have adapted visual signaling in order to communicate. It has even been proven that various species contain the ability to learn sign language as a way to directly communicate with humans. But in the wild, their visual language looks more like a waving of the arms, jumping, kicking, and in some cases, clapping, all meaning various things depending on where you are studying the animals. But make no mistake about it, they do communicate. So why did we not go down a similar path? Why do we use our voice instead? Well, Elaine Morgan's argument is that if we were mostly submerged in water, or at least spent a really good portion of time in water, then visual signals would have been useless. Another individual inside or outside the water would not be able to see what you were trying to say to them if you were up to your neck in water. 
And the question that remains unanswered is, did we develop speech as a way to communicate due to our environment, which may have been a bit wetter than we are told it was? Other head scratchers. Before we sign off on this subject, there are a few smaller points to make. So in this section of the presentation, I'll dive into a few other aspects of the aquatic ape theory that do not fit into the sections I previously covered. And the first thing that we need to go over is sex. There are only three land mammals in the world that have been proven to have sex in a face-to-face -face position. Humans are the most prevalent and will typically do this as the most common sexual position for the species. But gorillas, orangutans, and bonobos have been witnessed doing so as well. Bonobos choose the missionary position about half of the time, where orangutans and gorillas choose it very infrequently. Up until recently, it was believed that only humans had sex in such a fashion. But where else in the animal kingdom is this practice seen? <laughs> you guessed it. In aquatic and semi-aquatic species. Whales, dolphins, and even beavers all typically have sex in a face-to-face -face position. But how about the menstrual cycle of the human female? Is there any coincidence that the typical cycle lasts 29 and a half days, which is exactly the same length of the lunar cycle? There are no known land mammals that follow any lunar cycles for any part of their biological day, but there are plenty of ocean species that are synced with the lunar cycle in regard to the biological activities, which are much more important than on land due to the tides being directly related to the lunar phases. One of the most intriguing physical features of the human body when it comes to the aquatic ape theory is the nose. The closest thing to the human nose in nature is that of the proboscis monkey, and science has its theories as to why that nose developed the way it did. Our noses, on the other hand, differ from all of the others because of a structure attached to the skull referred to as the nasal spine. This is the little point of the skull that protrudes out to a point just above the upper lip and below the nasal cavity. Honestly, I didn't even know this existed, but it is due to this little feature that our nose is not just as flappy as an elephant's trunk. The nose drops down from an area between the eyes and continues away from the skull following cartilage. This is why the nose is movable to an extent. With the nasal spine under the bottom of the nose, these internal structures create a downward pointed nose that looks nothing like anything in the animal world. Primates typically have two holes above their lips that are not protruding from the facial structure. Our nasal structure comes in handy in one situation, diving into water. Apes have a notoriously bad time in water due to water easily entering the nasal passageways. This is not the case for humans. Once learned how to swim without getting water in your nose, this becomes incredibly easy and more or less a habit instead of a consciously stressed activity. But the mysteries of the nose don't end there. Now let's look at the part of the upper lip known as the philtrum which is the vertical groove between the base of the nose and the border of the upper lip. For one, no other primate has developed inverted lips like that of a human. Many humans without a mustache can push their lips into their nostrils with their fingers before submerging themselves in the water. This of course takes some practice, but once mastered, the lips stay in place perfectly and stop any water from entering the nostrils. Of course, this was probably more predominant before we began to adapt to life outside of the water, but if you look at the formation of the upper lip, the philtrum does match the tissue structure between nostrils and the fattiest parts of the lips are directly under the holes in your nose. I thought that this was very interesting, <laughs> and I had to test it with my kids. It worked, but the lips easily fell away with any twitch of the facial muscles or too fast change in direction. Anyways. I know this was a pretty quick one on a very, very dense subject, but all in all, 
The research into this topic has really increased my interest into a subject that honestly didn't hold much weight for me. But the arguments put forward by the authors of the books and articles I read through are truly eye-opening. The fact of the matter is that we came from somewhere. Our history is a thing. But did we come from the dry, arid savannah of prehistoric East Africa? I personally no longer believe that is the case. There are just too many things that do not connect for me anymore. Why did the adaptions that our biology made not happen in others that shared the same space with us? There is an incredible amount of material on this subject, and if there is enough demand, I believe that I can extend this presentation to a second episode sometime down the road. So please, if you did enjoy this and want to know more, reach out. Let me know. And until next time, travelers, I'll see you in the next path of the infinite rabbit hole. Goodbye. I would like to thank you once again for tuning in to the Infinite Rabbit Hole Podcast. Please make sure to give us a follow and one of those beautiful five-star ratings on your podcast player of choice. If you would like to join the conversation and stay up to date on all things Infinite Rabbit Hole, head on over to Facebook and search for the Infinite Rabbit Hole Facebook group. You'll know it's us when you see the logo. If you would like to help contribute to the cause, there are a few ways to do so. First head on over to anchor.fm forward slash infinite rabbit hole and click on the subscribe button where for $5 a month you'll get access to all our old episodes that will never see the free spotlight ever again. It's horrible stuff, but if you're into that kind of thing, then go check it out. Second, head on over to infiniterabbithole.com and click on the IRH merch shop tab and grab yourself a sweet t-shirt, sticker, or whatever else you see that you wouldn't mind owning. Until next time, travelers, I'm Jeremy, and I'll see you at the next fork in the path of the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Bye.